Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. So last time we talked a bit about the Desert Fathers and Mothers, these first monks and nuns who went off into the desert to live a monastic life, or if you follow John Cassian, these people who continued living the monastic life, which we see uh, exhibited in Acts one way or the other. This is the sort of origin of popular monasticism. And we asked the question, why did they do this? And was this kind of like a weird self-help, I'm going to work on myself take a lifelong retreat, not worry about anybody else, do me, kind of selfish thing to do. So the monks and nuns of the desert, the desert fathers and mothers, they really took this step for one reason. There was one goal in what they were doing. And it's a goal that's identified by the early church as actually the whole point of our life. Like this is everything. And to us, it may sound super depressing, But for many in the early church, the idea was that this life is given to us for repentance. If repentance means being bummed out and feeling really guilty and just like thinking that you're worthless, that would be a terrible reason to be alive. What's the meaning of life? Feeling crappy all the time. Oh, that's very depressing. Thanks, early church. Fortunately, That has nothing to do with repentance. That is not what repentance actually means. So if we want to look at the origins of this idea that this life is given to us for repentance, what that literally means is discoverable in the third chapter of Genesis. So the man and the woman, they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They turn their backs on God. They stop investing in relationship with God. They break their unity with God. They turn away from him. And then this happens. God made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a sword flaming, and turning to guard the way of the tree of life. God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. We read that, and we might think that God went out and killed a bunch of squirrels and made a sort of fetching squirrel skin cape and some uh, polar bear skin boots and some, I don't know, leather jerkins or whatever. But for the early church, reading this, that's not what they inferred at all. Instead, for the early church, the garments of skin were our fleshly lives, our mortal bodies. These are the garments of skin which Adam and Eve are given. They're given, in a sense, mortal life, life in the midst of death, life removed from the source of life, but continuing to live, life leading unto death. And then we're told that Adam and Eve are ejected from the garden, that an angel and a fiery sword are placed at the entry to the garden so that Adam and Eve can't go and eat from the tree of life and then live forever. 
And it sounds like God is acting out of jealousy and fear, as though they will discover the source of his magical powers, get those themselves, and then be like God, be just as powerful. But in fact, what the early church said when they read this passage, when they would preach on this passage, is not that God is jealous and trying to keep the man and the woman from being like him, like achieving his level of fantasticness. Instead, what he's saying is that Adam and Eve have rebelled against him, have cut themselves off from the source of life, have cut themselves off from the source of goodness and love and peace and joy. And if in this state they eat of the fruit of the tree of life, they will enter into eternity under those conditions. They will eternally be opposed to God, eternally be rejecting God, and they will be like the demons. So as a mercy, God shuts off the possibility of entering into eternity while hating him and gives Adam and Eve another chance. He gives them life in the midst of death, life leading unto death. And this life is given to us for repentance. It's not given to us to feel really down on ourselves and beat ourselves up and be sad all the time and think, oh, God doesn't love us. That is, again, the opposite of repentance. Repentance is falling in love with God again. It is becoming obedient to God again. It is learning to rejoice in God again, to trust God again, to fall in love with love himself. My incredibly wise, amazing spiritual director once told me about sailing a boat. And I have never sailed a ship in my life. I don't know how this works. But according to him, when you're sailing... You don't just set the coordinates and then sit back and have a glass of Pinot Grigio on the poop deck. Instead, you are constantly course correcting. So you, you see off in the distance the direction you want to go, and the boat starts to drift a little bit to the left. So you adjust the sails to bring it back on course. And then the boat starts to drift a little bit towards the right, and you adjust the sails to bring it back on course. And then back to the left, and back to the right, and back to the left. And the whole sailing voyage is this process of constant course correction. You notice that you're drifting and you bring it back on course. A life of repentance is not a life of feeling bad. It is a life of getting back on course. So we know that we are called to be on the path of Christ, the path that leads to Christ, the path trod by Christ, the path that makes our lives look like Christ's life a life of intense, infinite love of God and intense, infinite love of our neighbors. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be. And we get on this path as Christians, and then we start to drift off towards the left. We start to tell little tiny lies, make little tiny judgments of others. We start to cheat on our taxes, cheat on our spouses, whatever it is, and repentance is the process of slapping ourselves upside the head and going, oh my gosh, I'm completely off course. Lord, help me. Forgive me. Help me get back on the path. And then accepting that help, accepting that grace, accepting that forgiveness, and getting back on course. And then we start to drift a little off towards the right, and we gossip a little bit. We are unkind to someone who needs our help. We are unkind to someone who has been unkind to us. We murder someone. We burn down someone's house. And we say, oh my gosh, I am so far off the path that leads to Christ. 
Lord, help me. And we ask for forgiveness and we receive the grace of God and we get back on the path. One common misunderstanding about Christianity is that it is a legal system. There is a law book in heaven, and being a Christian means abiding by the rules in the law book, and if you keep all the rules in the law book, you get this major reward, an infinite eternal vacation at the end of your life, and if you break the laws in the law book, you get infinite eternal jail, underground, in a cave, with fire and pitchforks. And it's not that simple. So, in fact, it's less like a legal system and more like a dental system. The dentist says, look, if you brush and floss your teeth every day, you're going to keep your teeth. If you decide not to brush and not to floss, you're going to lose your teeth. I'm just giving you the info. So if you decide, you know, to heck with brushing, to heck with flossing, I'm not doing it. It's a waste of time. The dentist is not like an evil tooth fairy who's going to creep into your house and steal all your teeth at night. That's not how dentists work. All the dentist is doing is saying, here's the path to keeping your teeth. Here are the tools to keep your teeth. I highly recommend you follow these ways and keep your teeth. But if you don't, you know, it's your choice. God is saying, here's the path of life. Here's the path of death. I would give literally anything, my own son, my own self, literally anything to have you stay on the path of life. But you're not a robot. I'm not going to force you to do that. If you really want the path of death, then you can choose the path of death. Repentance is recognizing when you are on the path of death and saying, oh, Lord, my heavenly Google map, please get me out of here. Show me the path of life. Help me get back on the path of life. And he always does. That is the life of repentance. So this life is given to us for repentance. This life is given to us to get back on the path of life, to get off the path of death, to re-fall in love with love and goodness and peace and selflessness and harmony and kindness and joy, and to reject all of their opposites. And so the desert fathers and mothers said, you know what? I'm going to do this hardcore. I'm going to live a life of complete and total repentance. The interesting thing is that when you go out into the desert, apparently, so they tell us, and you sit face to face with Christ, it's not as though you stop cheating on your taxes, stop murdering people, get all those kind of ducks in a row, and then you're good. Instead, the more you repent, the more room you see that you have to repent, like the further there is to go to really be on the path of life. There's one story from the stories of the Desert Fathers and Mothers in which there is this incredibly holy old monk. And he is hes the kind of spiritual father to all these other monks. He is just this shining light of wisdom and truth and goodness and selflessness. And he's lying on his deathbed. And all the brothers are gathered around. And they say, tell us, Father, tell us what you see. And he says, I see the angels coming for me. And they're like, oh my gosh, the angels are coming for him. And then he starts mumbling, kind of like moving his lips. And they're like, Father, what are you saying? Give us your last words of wisdom. Tell us what's happening. And he says, I'm begging them for more time to repent. And all the monks say, Father, you have nothing to repent of. Like, you are as good as it gets. We all so wish we could be like you. And he says, 
No, my sons, I'm realizing that I have not yet even begun my repentance. And this is what happens when you sit face to face with Christ. You are filled with joy and grace and the peace of his presence and the sense of his glory. And you are also filled with the consciousness of how far you are from that. It's not that you have broken all the rules in the rule book. It is that the path of life is so glorious and so big and so astonishing. The life of Christ, the way in which he loves God and the way in which he loves all people is so infinite that we have so far to go go to grow into what he has called us to be, to grow into the full stature of Christ. And so the more these desert fathers and mothers repented, the more they realized that they needed to repent. And they lived this life of repentance. The interesting thing is that in all these stories, their lives are pervaded with a lot of peace and a lot of joy. It is what sometimes, uh, a phrase that sometimes used to describe the season of Lent, it's this bright sadness. It is this um, almost sort of joyful solemnity. It is the sense in which like they are so conscious of how far they have to go and so conscious of the beauty and the joy and the glory of the goal, the beauty and the joy and the glory of God who loves them anyway. But getting even to this point where you realize how much you have to repent of getting to this point of joy in the desert, even that is a really challenging hard road. So one of the great desert mothers is Ama Theodora, Mother Theodora. And this is from a collection of sayings of the desert fathers and mothers. This is a translation by Benedict Ward. It's called The Desert Christians. It is fantastic, indispensable Christian reading. Ama Theodora said, It is good to live in peace, for the wise man practices perpetual prayer. It is truly a great thing for a virgin or a monk to live in peace, especially for the younger ones. However, you should realize that as soon as you intend to live in peace, at once evil comes and weighs down your soul through faint-heartedness and evil thoughts. It also attacks your body through sickness, debility, weakening of the knees and all the members. It dissipates the strength of soul and body so that one believes one is ill and no longer able to pray. But if we are vigilant, all these temptations fall away. There was in fact a monk who was seized by cold and fever every time he began to pray, and he suffered from headaches too. In this condition he said to himself, I am ill and near to death, so now... I will get up before I die and pray. By reasoning in this way, he did violence to himself and prayed. When he had finished, the fever abated also. So by reasoning in this way, the brother resisted and prayed and was able to conquer his thoughts. So when monks and nuns went out into the desert to live this life of repentance, not only did they have to face hunger and thirst and heat and living in total privation, they were also completely under attack. And this is true any time we try and establish a regular rule of prayer. You don't have to be a monk, you don't have to be a nun, you don't have to be living under extreme circumstances. This is just what happens when you try and have a rich prayer life. You immediately fall under attack. 
And it's not the attack of some sort of like horror movie version of evil where some like giant bat is trying to like claw you or something silly like that. The enemy attacks us through temptation. And it's not like, oh, I'm going to start a, a rule of prayer, but first I have, have this temptation to go murder a bunch of people or something like that. It is really quotidian, boring, dumb temptation. So you might think, all right, today's the day. I'm going to start my intense rule of prayer. I'm going to say morning prayer every single day. And you get out of bed and you're like, okay, I'm going to say morning prayer. But first, I really need a cup of coffee. I want to be fully awake for this. So you go in the kitchen, and you make coffee, and then you're like, and my stomach's going to be grumbling if I don't have a bowl of cereal, so I'm going to have some cereal. So you have your coffee, and you have your cereal, and then you're like, I'm going to say morning prayer. But then you say, but last night, I didn't actually have a chance to empty the dishes, and I do need to empty the dishwasher because I need to put the cereal bowl in the dishwasher before I leave for work. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to empty the dishwasher, and then I'm going to say morning prayer. And you empty the dishwasher, and then your phone dings, and you have an email. And it's, it's something work-related. It's not maybe the most pressing thing, but if you don't do it now, you're probably going to forget about it, and then you will get in trouble. So you're going to answer this email, and then you're going to say morning prayer. But you answer the email, and then it's really time to get in the shower. And if you don't get in the shower now, you're not going to have a shower. You're going to be stinky at work. Everybody's going to hate you. Basically... You've been overwhelmed by this flood of temptation. And if this is what happens to you and me, these like, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but for myself, incredibly pathetic versions of a deep spirituality, think about what happens when someone says, I'm going to sell everything I have, give every last penny to the poor, give everything basically to Christ, and walk out into the desert to find only him. They get this onslaught, not of emails, but of negative thoughts, of weariness, of feeling like I'm too sick to pray, I'm too tired to pray. I, and so a lot of monks and nuns would eventually just give up and say, you know what, this is, I just, these temptations are too intense. I just, I can't do this anymore. So they would go to an old man or an old woman of the desert, not old in terms of age, but old in terms of number of years in the desert. So an old man of the desert might be 35, but he went into the desert when he was 20. Or he might be 50, but he went into the desert when he was 15 or whatever. So you go to an old man or an old woman of the desert and you say, Father, Mother, I'm having all of these thoughts, all of these thoughts that are telling me to give up. What should I say to my thoughts? And they would give you a word of wisdom. There's a wonderful story about a young monk who's been in the desert for a while, a couple of years, but he has this onslaught of temptations. And his temptations are not dishes and email, nor are they feelings of sickness. His temptation is, what if I am totally wasting my life? Like, I could be having a family, I could be raising kids, I could become a human rights lawyer, I could become a surgeon, like I could become somebody that is actually helping other people, and instead I'm just sitting in my cell day after day just kind of doing my own thing. Maybe this is the opposite of what God wants from me. Maybe I should be living a life of service. So he goes to an old man and he says, you know, these are my thoughts, like what should I tell them? Do you think I should like move back to Alexandria? maybe go on some dates, get married, become a uh, construction worker, build safe houses for people to live in. And the old man says, here's what to tell your thoughts. When you, when you have these thoughts saying, why am I out here in the wilderness? Tell your thoughts that you are guarding the walls. So in an ancient city, 
you'd have these walls that were defenses against foreign armies, against uh, just brigands, against any sort of invader. And then on the tops of the walls or the outside of the walls, you'd have your kind of toughest of the tough troops. The marines of your city would be on the outsides of the walls so that if there were an onslaught from outside, those guys wouldn't even get to the walls because you have the toughest of the tough doing the most dangerous job on the outside of the walls, guarding the walls. And this monk, the old monk, said to the younger monk, tell them, tell your thoughts, you are guarding the walls. You actually are doing this super important job. We often think of prayer as something maybe akin to like yoga or mindfulness or something, something you do to make yourself more relaxed or more productive or whatever. But for the early church, that was not prayer at all. For the early church, prayer was about making yourself a place where Christ is, making your heart a throne for Christ, making your life a reflection of Christ's life. And when through prayer and repentance, you were becoming more and more a reflection of his goodness, a reflection of his glory, you were actually changing the nature of the world. You were creating in the darkness a space for light. And it was a space for light which would radiate out and actually begin changing everything. Evil has no power in the presence of good. Darkness is literally nothing in the presence of light. Darkness just goes away. So by making your heart a temple of the Holy Spirit, by making your life this reflection of Christ, you were literally changing the nature of the creation. You were doing something exceptionally powerful, exceptionally good. The great Abba Anthony, St. Anthony, who we talked about last time, has this vision at some point. And an angel comes to him and he says, Anthony, there is one who is your like. There is one who is like you in his intensity of prayer, his intensity of repentance. And Anthony's like, oh, I'd love to meet this guy. Sounds like we have a lot in common. And so the angel shows him a vision and he is a doctor in an inner city. And he lives a life of service to others, of love of of others, and this life of deep, intense prayer. His life is a reflection of Christ. His life is a life spent dwelling on the presence of the Holy Spirit within him. And so he is not better than Anthony because he's also a doctor. He is not worse than Anthony because he's not a monk. They are equal in that they are both these reflections of the glory of Christ through whom God is working to change the world. They have made themselves open to God, and God is moving through them and working through them. We sometimes think about monks and nuns of whatever religious tradition as like these people who go off into their cloisters or these people who go up to the tops of mountains and they spend all these years kind of living this really hard life. And almost by this magical transformation, they're transformed into these like illuminated beings who have this like incredible wisdom or, or this amazing peace. Like they're just like a different order of humanity. But for the Desert Fathers and Mothers, that was not the case at all. The stuff they wrestled with is just the regular old stuff that we wrestle with. And through that life of repentance, they got better as wrestlers. So there are stories of old monks who have been in the desert for 50 years. And when you ask them about, you know, have, has the temptation for money or the, the temptation of lust or the temptation of vainglory disappeared, they're like, no, it's still totally present. I just fight it all the time and I've gotten good at fighting. So this life of repentance, this life of course correcting the ship, of getting back on the path of life, 
if what they're doing is what we could also be doing, then how can we sort of take the techniques of the desert fathers and mothers and apply them to our lives? So one of the things that they fight against is the sin of vainglory. Vainglory, we often don't think of as a sin. In fact, it's sort of like the way you should be living your life. It is maybe our most cherished and beloved social norm. Because vainglory is the practice of trying to get everybody to like you. It is caring, most of all, about people's opinions of you. And who of us does not fall completely into that camp? Maybe there are some people out there who are like, you know, I don't care what people say about me. I just love them and they can love me back or not. It's not a big deal. But I think that is a very small an incredibly admirable fraction of humanity, of which I would very much like to be a part, but sadly I'm not yet. I'm trying. How did the fathers repent of vainglory? So there's a wonderful story about this old monk who takes a group of young monks out into the desert with a shovel. And they come to this graveyard, and the old monk digs up an old grave. And there's a dead body lying there, these bones lying there. And the young monks are looking at each other like, has he gone nuts? And then he says, watch this. And he leans down to the grave and he whispers, the day you died, the world cried. People who had never met you, who had only heard about you, were sobbing. People thronged the streets because you were so beloved. You were probably the most brilliant human being who has ever walked the planet Earth. You were innovative. You were a genius. You were hilarious. You were the life of every party. Everybody basically wanted to be you. You were the perfect human being. And he turns back to the monks and he says, what did he say? And they're like, nothing. He's dead. So he says, okay, then watch this. He turns back to the body and he says, you were really just awful. Everybody hated you. Even people that pretended like they liked you were 100% pretending. Your parents didn't like you. Your spouse didn't like you. You were the most annoying person who has ever lived. You were so ill-informed on every topic, and yet you would hold forth for hours. You were incredibly boring. What's more, you were mean. You were selfish. You were conceited. You were not easy on the eyes. Basically, the one good thing you ever did for anyone was leaving this world. You left the world a much better place by not being in it. You were a terrible human being. You were 100% the worst, and everybody thought so. And he turns back to the monks and says, what did he say? And they said, nothing. He's dead. Have you lost your mind? And the old monk said to the young monks, be like the dead. Vainglory, trying to get everyone to like you, caring about the opinions of humans, is so pernicious and so dangerous and such a brutal trap. You can spend your life keeping up with the Joneses, trying to impress strangers, caring about what random people think. It's pointless. The Christian life is not about that. The Christian life is about reflecting the nature of Jesus Christ, of being a place where the kingdom of God happens, of being a temple of God the Holy Spirit. And whether or not people like you is just not part of the equation. When our Lord was on the cross, there were only the myrrh women 
the Virgin Mary, St. John, and some Roman soldiers there. He was not well-liked. He was not loved by many. He had been abandoned. The lives of the apostles were not easy breezy. In fact, almost all of them were martyred. Being liked, impressing people, showing other people that you are worthwhile, that's just not what we do as Christians. Instead, the goal of the Christian life is to love those people. They can hate you, you love them. They can like you, you love them. They can be crazy about you, you love them. But it is about loving, it is about giving, it is about being Christ-like to them. It's not about gaining respect. It's not about gaining friends. It's not about public opinion at all. It is just about love. The monks and nuns of the desert would really live like the dead, and they were often called the dead. They were, they were thought of as having left this world behind entirely. But even we, who don't live in the desert, we can also take some of this. We can attempt to wrestle against our thoughts of vainglory, to not just let them come upon us and control us, but to at least try and fight against them, to try and fight against the impulse to impress people, the impulse to make people like you, the impulse to make people respect you, and to simply focus on following Christ, on staying on the path of life, on repenting when we wander away from it, asking God's forgiveness and asking his grace to return to that path, to open our hearts once again to his grace so that he can work through our lives, so that our lives can be a place where the kingdom of God is happening, so that we ourselves can be a vision of heaven, so that we start to look less and less like ourselves and more and more like Christ. So next time we will jump into some of the other things that the desert fathers and mothers were fighting against and learn some more techniques of their desert repentance jujitsu. Thank you for joining me for the History of Christianity. It's great being with you.